Hi everyone and welcome back to another Parliamental. Anne, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. Also, we sound a wee bit different today. Just a bit. But if anyone can notice. Do you think they will notice? I don't know, you can tell there's no iron board and you can also tell there's like 400 miles of copper cable in between us because we are doing this via Skype today. We're in different countries today. Different countries, Anne. And you are, so where are you just now? I'm in my flat, where are you? So I'm in a flat in London. So I'm here for the weekend because my niece Christy um, is home from Taiwan for a month and she wanted to spend the weekend in London and come into Parliament with me on Monday so I stayed down to meet her at the airport last night and we're going to have a weekend together and then she's going to come and see me in Parliament and then the rest of the family get her for the next month. Nice, it sounds like you're actually managing to get some personal time <laughs> which, you do, which you rarely get the chance to do. <laughs> it's stupendously wonderful shall I just say. <laughs> But um, last week you tweeted um, during the week that um, you'd fired up our last podcast to see just how much we'd get out of date because obviously we're talking in the middle of a very changeable situation and a lot's even changed since then. So anyway, let's go parliamental. But first, let's hear Alan Smith's speech to the European Parliament. I represent Scotland within this house and where I'm proudly Scottish, I'm also proudly European. I want my country... I want my country to be internationalist, cooperative, ecological, fair, European. And the people of Scotland, along with the people of Northern Ireland and the people of London, and lots and lots of people in Wales and England also, voted to remain within our family of nations. I demand that that status and that esprit européen be respected. Now, colleagues, there is a lot of things to be negotiated. We will need cool heads and warm hearts. But please remember this. Scotland did not let you down. Please, I beg you, do not let Scotland down now. So that was a fantastic speech from Alan. Like I felt, you know, the saltar uh, swinging behind me when he played it. Um, when he said that, you know, the bagpipes going and all that. And what did it sound like to you? You know, as a parliamentarian, someone who's in the SNP here, and Alan Smith sort of talk about Scotland in those terms. Uh, yeah, no, it was great. I mean, he—I've never really seen Alan like that. I've known Alan a long time, and I felt it was really quite emotional. Um, and um, yeah, he told me that he hadn't planned to speak, and. He just realised when, I think when Farage was speaking, that he had to say something. So he went down to their equivalent, to the Speaker of the House, and said, I need to say something. So I think sometimes the best uh, speeches come when they're not planned. And, they, you know, you just really mean what you're saying. Um, so, yeah, it was great. Shake a leg, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> it was really surprising because I heard him say that as well. He didn't plan it, which was um, amazing. Obviously, the the guy's a, a, a public speaker on a regular basis, so he's got the he's got the ability to turn phrase. But it really sounded like he'd written it, but apparently not. Apparently, it was just kind of off the cuff. It was off the cuff, but I think that often works uh, best. And um, when people free themselves from notes, they can really make uh, interesting contributions. I mean, I I'll give you an example, but I won't tell you who it was. Somebody in my group who always uses notes and always reads the script as it is, thought she wasn't getting to speak um, and so dispensed with her notes. And then the speaker called her. Uh, <laughs> 
And I didn't realise what had happened. All I realised was that she was making a brilliant speech, a brilliant and impassioned speech. And I said to her later, and she said, oh, I didn't think I was speaking, and I just got rid of my notes, my script. Um, and so now you know it was a female. But she was absolutely good. <laughs> I think that's what happens sometimes when you just take away the script and just say what you really feel. I think that's when you get the best speeches. Yeah, it can be a safety net, can't it? You feel that you've got your, you've got your notes in front of you, but um, just trust yourself just to go for it. Yeah, not that I ever trust myself, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, someone who did trust himself was uh, Nigel Farage. She gave what was, I think, a seven-minute long tirade mm-hmm. of, um, I think the subtext was, get it up, yes, I think was what he, he basically okay. said to the, the Parliament. I can see why it incensed uh, Alan Smith so much. Yeah. But, um, because in some ways, I kind of... I, I can empathise with Farage that he's finally he's finally achieved his dream. Um but it was uh, it was kind of disgusting that he just insulted everyone around about him. I won't play it in the podcast, but yeah, it's seven minutes of um, grim victory speech. If you want to listen to it on YouTube, well, it's just so it's just so rude. I mean, can you imagine if we'd won our independence? Can you imagine Alex Salmond, tempted as he might have been, doing that in <laughs> Westminster? He just wouldn't have done it because you've got to you've got to good relations with other countries, and it just was so bloody rude. Am I allowed to swear yeah. on the podcast? Yeah, you can. Go for it, body. Oh. Say body if you want to. I might progress from there when we get to talking about <laughs> other things. <laughs> um, but yeah, I completely agree. I mean, if, if Alex Salmond um, had stood up and made a, a very sort of uh, a not nice speech about winning Scottish independence, he'd have been pilloried and torn apart for being isolationist yeah. and narrow-minded and all that. And, and even, in, even in Farage's hazy, ill-defined dream of post-Brexit Britain, um, he still needs to trade the people and still talk. To, you know, he's not he's not actually planning to float us off in the middle of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So yep. it was kind of rough him, kind of rough him to do it. But in some ways, it was uh, interesting to see him actually being uh, quite passionate <laughs> because yeah. he'd achieved his dream. But we're all living in that dream now. Uh, yeah, a nightmare. And he's he's uh, cleared off. Um, not not from the paid job, obviously, but he's, oh, <laughs> he's cleared off from the mopping up and the where do we go now? He's done his bit and off he goes. Yeah, I mean, also he's going to now because someone pointed out, I think that obviously the value of the pound has dropped considerably, and therefore his EU pension has uh, has increased dramatically. So, well done, Nigel. <laughs> Best of both worlds. Incredible, incredible. It's also had an impact. Obviously, Brexit's had an impact on leadership in Westminster, which seems to be changing on a daily basis. What, what the hell's happening? Then? It seems like every five minutes, Jeremy Corbyn's getting a knife in the back or a knife in the front or a knife sent to him in the post. I, I think I said in the last podcast that I was really... Or maybe in the last podcast this hadn't started yet. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting mixed up with real life and podcasting. Uh, so I'll say it now. I am a Corbyn supporter. Not a Labour Party supporter, obviously. But I'm a Corbyn supporter. And I think what's happened to him is utterly despicable. Um, I was speaking to my mum and she said this is not a coup and it's a witch hunt and it was quite sad because she said to me you know Anne you're too young to remember (laughs) I like it when people say that (laughs) it's not often it happens but you're too young to remember but the Labour Party used to be a great party and I thought that is is so sad Um, to my mind uh, uh, I'm really irritated by this thing that you have to dress snap you have to dress in a certain way and conform in a certain way you have to speak in a certain way you have to you know conform to what the media tells you is a good leader good leadership is about sticking to your principles 
and ensuring that your party sticks to its principles. Now, I, I mean, since coming back down here, I've spoken to a couple of Labour MPs that I do like and who weren't part of the original witch hunt, um, but who did vote against him in the vote of no confidence. Um, but they wouldn't have instigated any of this. And they're decent people and they've got concerns about, about his leadership and part of it's to do with internal stuff. But I think I don't think any of it justifies what's happened. I don't think any no. of it does. Like, I think one of the things in parallel, the SNP have become so successful recently and for, for kind of two halves of the equation. One is that there are policies and personalities that are genuine and people believe in. Um, obviously not all the country, but a, a huge amount of people. And that's been married with um, a groundswell in membership. And obviously there are more people who are uh, supportive than there are members. Members are obviously a kind of subset of those people. So there's this combination of the right people and then people being inspired by it. And Jeremy Corbyn, like I said, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Labour Party member myself, not a Labour supporter. Um, but Jeremy Corbyn, on many policy issues, seems to be in the right place for me. Yeah. And he seems to really connect with his membership, who have obviously massively increased um, over the uh, since since he's been leader, yeah. it's just the parliamentary Labour Party, um, which seem to have the problem. And the parliamentary Labour Party are all kind of hollow suits, in my opinion, who've yeah. are all kind of you know the mates of previous uh, regimes, basically. So, th th this idea that Jeremy's on the hook is is mm -hmm. kind of iffy because actually, if you're if Labour Party want to kind of grow and, and get more success and, and increase their share of the vote, Jeremy Corbyn's doing that just at the minute. He's he's the one that's sort of energising their membership. It's the parliamentary Labour Party that aren't. No, they can't bear it though. Some of them just, they've been waiting for this opportunity and they picked a spectacularly mistaken in the timing because look at the disarray that the Tories are in and the, the post-Brexit plan that never existed and that is an outrage and that's what we should all be talking about at the moment. The fact that there was no plan, what government doesn't plan for the future knowing that it's either going to be that we remain or leave um, and that's what we should be talking about but instead of talking about the Labour Party, the Labour Party should be leading on talking about that and attacking them but instead they chose this time and months ago I spoke to a Labour MP who told me that it was a really depressing time in the PLP, because the Parliamentary Labour Party, because there were a group of about 40 MPs who would never get over the fact that Jeremy Corbyn had won. Despite the fact that he won very convincingly, they would never get over it and they were like chucking their toys out the pram and, de and meeting in huddles and gossiping and finding ways and excuses to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. So those that that group that that, that MP told me about, clearly that group um, thought this was a great time to be able to do this without any thought to what the countries of the United Kingdom need, without any thought as to what their party needed. You know, just basically, this is our opportunity, and it's spiralled from there, and it's involved a lot of people that I don't actually think would have got involved in something like this. And you know how these things grow and they spiral out of control, and you either join it or you don't. And I've never, uh, so far in my life, been one for joining these things. I always, you know, take a step back, but I can understand that how it can happen to people. But it's a nonsense, and. And really, to be honest, um, 
as you say about policies, Jeremy Corbyn always supported the things the SNP supported, anti-austerity, anti-trade and all the rest of it. Another big test is coming up for them a week on Monday or Tuesday, there's going to be the vote on Trident. How are the Labour Party going to vote on that? So there's another nail in their coffin, unfortunately. But on policies, he's the one that can lead the Labour Party to victory. Um, but whether it will happen or not, I don't know. Whether they'll allow it to happen or not. I mean, opposition's meant to be easier than government. David Cameron, mm -hmm. for all for all his culpability in walking us into a referendum and then losing it, and he's currently working his notice. That's a that's a complicated and complex situation to operate in. But it should be an open an open goal for the opposition at this point, because all you have to do is point out the failings. That's all you have to. I mean, that's not that's not a, a really great opposition, but that's the bare minimum, and that's mm -hmm. the easiest thing for an opposition to do is to pick holes on the other side. Mm -hmm. And they're picking holes in themselves. I mean, it gave the opportunity for David Cameron to get a get a, make a big point in the Commons about, for God's sake, man go. I think is what he said to Corbyn. But this is the man who's, you know, failed failed in his task, resigned from uh, the prime ministership, working his notice. His own party's tear himself apart, and somehow the story is how the Labour Party are eating themselves. It's 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 just ridiculous that the Labour Party can get themselves into this. But to be honest, it, it's been a long time coming. I think this is. Um, this is Labour's biggest moment since since Neil Kinnock, really, um, to sort out their own house. Where does it end, though? I mean, the thing is, I I never really... I was saying on Twitter the other day, I predicted a number of things. I predicted that we would vote to leave. I predicted that Boris would not go ahead with his leadership bid. I predicted that Andrea Leadsom would be a candidate. I predicted that Jeremy Corbyn would not be challenged, and he hasn't. I mean, challenged for the leadership. Yeah. And and I, I I thought it was very telling that a week ago last Thursday was the day that Angela Eagle was to launch her leadership bid. And when it never happened, nothing happened. It just never happened. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't know why the press collude with these uh, Labour MPs because the press allow it to keep going. The press don't say, oh, why did she not launch it on the Thursday? And so what she said was that she was giving Jeremy the chance to step down. And so on the Friday, he didn't step down and she didn't launch it then either. So she was then giving him the weekend to mull it over. And then when, the week, when he mulled it over on the weekend and decided he wasn't doing it on the Monday, she was then waiting to see the outcome of talks between Tom Watson and of the unions who were then going to speak to Jeremy and when nothing happened then really basically I think there was never any intention to stand in a leadership challenge uh, unless he stood down and all they were trying to do was bully him and pressure him into standing down and as long as he refuses to do that I don't think there will be a leadership election and the press are still saying oh there's definitely going to be a leadership election in the Labour Party, bet you any money there isn't I think it was Chris Bryant MP was on Sunday Politics last week, and um, he was getting torn to shreds. It was um, so Jeremy Corbyn's an untenable leader, but he has to stand down without a challenge, basically because he, he couldn't be beaten. So he's an un, he's a he's he's a he's a dead dog leader that couldn't be beaten, um, which doesn't kind of add up. They just want him to go, and you're right, they want to kind of undermine him so that someone else can take over. But that's that's the Labour Party suicide, not right there, <laughs> because the only person that'll take him over will be another one of those shiny faced uh, kind of Blairites that no one likes outside of the party and uh, you know if you're in Britain just now and you want to vote Tory like vote Tory the Labour Party has to offer something different than what it's currently offering you know Jeremy Corbyn has given people a real alternative and it's energised the membership the people they are challenging Corbyn are kind of retrogressive step it's, it's just back to the stuff that didn't work last time they don't see it like that though they, they think they just need to try harder to get that 
Labour vote that turned to the Tories and, and that really depresses me, it depresses me for the future of England, it really does because if they don't see that people are crying out for somebody to uh, be, be promising to, you know, different policies to the Tories then I just don't know, I mean they're looking for the middle England, middle class votes but uh, Corbyn is not and yet he yeah. does attract that vote, incidentally, because some of the Labour MPs were saying to me that in their more well-to-do areas, lots of people really like Corbyn. Good, capitalise on that. Lots of people in more deprived areas will really like him if they get to understand that he is taking the Labour Party in the direction that it used to be in, i.e. don't punish the people for the, you know, the, the, the problems created by shall I say, neoliberalism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also shown um, the the breakdown of left and right as sort of uh, organising principles. It, it seems to be a class-based issue. You know, that w- one of the theories that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't, even though he was out campaigning for Remain, he's been criticised for not being, like, the leader for it, basically, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, that there are places, I mean, we've seen the north of England in various places who you would think of as being traditionally left-leaning, working class, mm-hmm. leaning towards a sort of UKIP, style uh, opinion um, so there is a kind of breakdown of left and right and it, it's uh, in my opinion it's kind of going in, in, in a sense of class you know metropolitan and rural yeah they're not I mean the thing is uh, so many people in deprived so-called deprived when I say I, I hate calling areas deprived areas because lots of people live in these areas and don't like that term so mm-hmm. I always say so-called but it's that's not me saying that it's not areas of deprivation but in these areas so many people turned to leave and UKIP not necessarily because they're naturally anti-immigrant um, and natural UKIP supporters but because UKIP candidates were speaking to them, speaking their language and they've nowhere else to turn in Scotland. You know, we've got a number of parties, mainly the SNP, we've got a number of parties to turn to as alternatives to the two traditionally big parties in Scotland. Obviously the SNP is the biggest party now, but um, we've got somewhere to express ourselves. But in England, how do you express yourself? You, if you you if you want rid of the Tories, who do you vote for? If you can't vote Labour because Labour are Tory light, there's really not much difference. And and yeah, so I I I agree, I agree with you, but I'm just waffling there, aren't I? <laughs> and, going, and since we mentioned the Tories quite a few times, right now when we record this, and it could be different by the time you listen to it at home. Um, now when we're recording this, the Tory party leadership is between Theresa May and Andrea Leadson. What's your kind of what's your feelings that we're so we're definitely in for a, a female prime minister, um, no matter what happens next. So, um, what's what's your thoughts on either of those candidates? Um, I am going to predict that Andrea Leadsom's going to win, um, and the reason wow. I'm saying that. Wow, that's that that scared me, and it's sad that that scared me. I know, I know. All right, I, t- I tell you what, let's let's try it another way. I'm going to predict that Theresa May is going to win. Did that scare you, Jerry? Yeah, but it scared me slightly less, which in itself is scary. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, the thing is, um, it, it kind of scares me slightly less to have Theresa May there, only, but only because I've met her, I've spoken to her, I've questioned her, I've had pretty reasonable answers from her. Uh, so, better the devil, you know. Uh, Andrea Ledson's a bit of an unknown quantity to me, but I think she'll win. And the reason I think she'll win is, um, and bear in mind all those other things that I told you I predicted, and they happened, mm-hmm. 
and I did predict that she would be a leadership candidate. Um, I thought during the Leave campaign she was the only one that, that really stood out. Uh, not that I agreed with a word she said, but she was incredibly good at getting that message across and she was incredibly good at sounding incredibly reasonable. Mm. Um, and also she reminds me of Thatcher and I think there'll be a wee emotional pull for a lot of Tories there. And you've got to remember, it's now down to the membership and some of the things that people are posting or quotes from her on Facebook and Twitter to show how absolutely dreadful this woman's views are. These are the things that appeal to these Tory voters. So, yeah. you know, I think it's because of these things that she's, I think she's going to win. Yeah, it's the inverse of the American primary system, whereby you get candidates, obviously, like Donald Trump now is, is, yes. a, is a genuine candidate, but in the early stages, it incentivizes um, extremisms, maybe the, right, the wrong word, ideological extremism, mm -hmm. and as much as the constituency that's voting for you is very much the base and the motivated base. Yeah. And then as time goes on, those candidates tend to soften because they suddenly now, their constituency is now the entire country. Yeah. And this is happening in reverse in the Tory party, where you've got someone who's basically guaranteed to be a prime minister. And in the, the final stages of it is now having to appeal to the base rather than the wider country. So, yeah, I think although Theresa, Theresa May is a scary person, um, she's a very scary Home Secretary, but she at least exudes a sort of a ruthless competence. Yes. Um, leads them as a very sort of uh, down-home kind of like common sense, which always terrifies me, common sense, um, type candidate who would exactly appeal to, the, to that Tory base who are ultimately going to elect the Prime Minister next. Yeah, and even she's drawing comparisons between herself and Thatcher, and that's going to appeal to so many people. You know, and the one thing Theresa May has got going for her is that she made sure the Hillsborough families got their answers. She made sure they got, you know, the inquiry. And so she's done one good thing. I'm not sure what Andrea Leadsom's done, but I am pretty sure we're going to find it when she mm -hmm. becomes Prime Minister and in September. Yeah, I think Ledsom also reminds me of an early Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May reminds me of a late Margaret Thatcher. Um, <laughs> you know, one sort of uh, wide-eyed and kind of scary, another one's uh, very frowny and very serious and very controlling and scary. So I think that's one of the most scarier things. If you told me a few months ago that actually we'd, I'd now be hoping that Theresa May was the next Prime Minister, like that's terrifying in itself. Yeah, I know. But you're right actually about, now. I'm just thinking about what you said there about the, the two uh, Thatcher types. I mean, I, I mean, I, we shouldn't really, I suppose, I mean, well, it was Andrea Leadsom that drew the comparisons. I was going to say mm -hmm. we shouldn't really just compare them to her just because she's yeah. the other person that was a female mm -hmm. Tory Prime Minister. But Andrea Leadsom is kind of, you know, crafting herself in her, in her, um, what's that? T anyway, she, she's, she's the one drawing the comparisons. Yeah. You're right, she's like the younger one, which means the younger, sort of, less experienced one. Which and she does the whole common sense thing so well, um, mm -hmm. and she'll grow throughout this campaign. Uh, whereas yeah. Theresa May is the finished product. Yeah, you know, Theresa May's post Belgrano Thatcher. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell her that. <laughs> well, please anyway, don't. She'll probably like turn up at my door. Oh, what I'm saying is, um, it's uh, uh, whoever we get, we're doomed. We're doomed. <laughs> Basically, yeah, and, and there's just uh, this. Uh, I just don't know how that also impacts then what happens with the whole Brexit campaign or the the the, the Brexit process because we've, we're hearing noises that um, uh, Theresa May was was for Remain, Leadsom's obviously part of the campaign to leave. So I don't know how election of either of them sort of complicates the next stages. 
Well, I think um, I understand why the Leave campaigners are saying it should be a Leave Prime Minister. I get that. But in actual fact, given the negativity of the Leave campaign, I think it would be better to have somebody who is for Remain because they will they will hopefully have a better chance of having, you know, uh, uh, allowing us to leave, allowing the UK or whatever part of the UK leaves to leave, but with good relations with Europe. You know, if you think about it, if Theresa May is leading the negotiations, Theresa May didn't want to leave, so she has a far better chance of getting a good hearing yes. of other European leaders than somebody like Andrea Leadsom who told wee porky pies and things, <laughs> um, or, a, or was part of a campaign that told porky pies about mm -hmm. Europe. Um, and, yeah, but I, yeah, but it's still going to be Andrea Leadsom. Sorry. I'm put some money. I've got a bookies downstairs from me in London. I'm going to go and put some money well, on. That, that's a theory, isn't it? That if, if, if it's like a football game or something, your team's going to get beat or bet against your team so that if your team loses, you at least get some money to soften the blow. So, yeah. you know, you could put some heavy money in lead some and then, you know, use that to disappear to a foreign island somewhere and hide out until can it all I, calms down. Can I just point out, for the benefit of the listeners, Theresa May is not my team. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I feel like I feel like this entire process has made me and somehow be part of Theresa May's team, which makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, makes me feel unclean. Now, and, and all this Brexit stuff's going on, but parliamentary business still has to go forward. And you asked a question on Iraq. I think it was a written question. Um, do you want to tell me like what it was, what what it came from, and the kind of answer you got from uh, the government? Uh, oh, I've got to stop. You always get everything's great. It was basically a constituent had come to me. I had an open air surgery at a gala day in Bermulloch, and a constituent had come to me um, because she had friends in Iraq. Uh, she's part of an organisation that uh, campaigned against the Iraq War and blah blah blah. So. Um, she wanted me to ask about help to rebuild Iraq's economy and to ensure that the governance of the country was non-sectarian. And she was saying that people in Iraq, who, if you remember, you know, the war wasn't their choice, their country being shattered wasn't their choice, are currently frightened for their future so it was just to ask them what they were doing to support the development of democratic non-sectarian governance of Iraq and the government got back and said yeah lots we're doing lots it's all great <laughs> don't worry it's fine was it basically that kind of response was uh, yeah yeah it's all good move on yeah well the, they welcome the commitments that the government of Iraq has made to all these things that we want and we're given six million pounds um, to help them do things and at the end these funds will contribute to a number of projects designed to support community cohesion and encourage reconciliation, acceptance and tolerance between communities at a grassroots level. It's a kind of administrative answer. It's yeah. kind of like I was in a, um, there was an adjournment debate on human rights in Sri Lanka the other night and I intervened. You can't speak in these debates, it's only the person that brings the debate and the minister who can speak but you can intervene. Um, and I'm always astonished with that because uh, President Rajapaksa was the one who presided over the civil war or the ending of the civil war where they slaughtered innocent people, um, including bombing a hospital who lived in the Tamil regions. Um, and uh, one of his right-hand men 
was the man who is now president, Saracena. He stood against him, beat him, and he says much better things, and he has agreed to do certain things in terms of reconciliation and all the rest of it. Hasn't done them yet right enough, but he he sounds better. And the British government are so uh, kind of naively just accepting that this is what will happen. And I don't know if this is what they're doing in terms of Iraq, saying, well, we're giving them money, they've said they'll do this, and that'll be fine. You know, and really what I always want to ask, or I do ask, but I don't ever get an answer is, but how will you know if it's not fine? What are you doing to monitor it? And if you monitor it and discover that it's not all, you know, rosy, as they say it is, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's, um, we just cut them a check. And um, the, the British government, through the Department of Work and Pensions, does not like to cut people checks without, um, you know, 100 terms and conditions and loopholes and checkups and, and assessments and things like that. So why do we, and that's in our own system, why do we trust that would happen in a kind of volatile area? I know, but I do, I think our, I think our foreign office are a bit, impotent, you know, but they don't really seem to want to be any other way. You know, I, f- I mean, there's a lot of things that the British government could do and get involved in, and instead, as you said, they write a cheque and say, right, now you will you will be nice, won't you? Yeah, you'll play nice, won't you? Yeah, we'll play nice, and they go, right, okay, that's fine. I, f- I feel like um, the, foreign, the foreign office was was a, a name that you would hear more often in the news, obviously not apart from apart from Brexit at the minute, but you would hear the foreign Commonwealth office regularly talked about because it had some clout, but the foreign office seems to have disappeared recently. I don't know if it's been, it's, it's definitely from a media point of view, nowhere near as important when it's strange when our time, when Britain's place in the world is actually all over the place, the, mm-hmm. the foreign office is nowhere. There's all sorts of fallouts from Brexit that affect the Foreign Office. So, for instance, um, countries of the Caribbean have most of their trade is... uh, And bear in mind, most of these countries in the Caribbean are only just above the level that would make them a developing country. And the vast majority, like if you look at Jamaica, the vast majority of Jamaica's trade is with uh, Britain. Um, but it has an agreement with the EU that makes that trade easier. Um, but that agreement with the EU will impact on their trade because we won't be in the EU or England. The rest of the UK won't be in. Who knows what lands? <laughs> yeah. So the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I'm actually hoping to ask a There's a Foreign and Commonwealth Office question time next week. I didn't get a question in, but I'm hoping to ask as a supplementary about that. Because that will really impact, unless they manage to get trade agreements in place very quickly, that's going to impact on Caribbean countries and they're they're nervous about it. So that's something the Foreign and Commonwealth Office should be doing. I'm sure it's not just the Caribbean, you know, there's all sorts of different, you know, relationships going on there and it'll be interesting to watch the question time next week and see what see what questions they're asked and what what they're actually doing. I lean on from talking about Iraq there, also with a big bit of news this week when the Chilcot report was released, a couple of million words, so I'm sure you've read it all in. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm rereading it to be honest, I'm sort of, uh, you know, just you know, picking through some of the more interesting bits, but, um, but look, reading the secondary and tertiary reading, because that's all you can kind of really achieve, um, there's a couple of key findings that were, and so, I mean it was it was news, but it wasn't news to anyone who opposed the Iraq war, um, you know, Iraq posed, they, they found that Iraq posed no imminent threat to the UK, legal basis of war was far from satisfactory, 
um, you know, Tony Blair presented information with a certainty that was not justified and all this. So all this stuff, I think, and you were against the, the war and um, all this stuff that people kind of knew. So well, how have you felt reading something that's 2.6 million words, obviously read the whole thing, um, that kind of basically says, yeah, you were right? Well, don't get any satisfaction out of it. Um, I have to say, I, I watched uh, a programme on the BBC about um, a couple whose son was a soldier for the British Army and was killed in Iraq, going out to Iraq. And, um, yeah, you just forget how awful it all was and still is and, and the idea that it needn't have happened. And, you know, I had I was tweeting about it. Um, obviously, I didn't read the whole thing, but our, our research team down here did. Each of the researchers was given a section to read and they went through it thoroughly and we've had quite detailed briefings and it's just it's just horrible to think that it didn't need to be like this and that, you know, Blair knew that it didn't need to be like this and I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know why. I, I still don't understand it myself, why he... Do you just get carried away with that much power? Did he get carried away with the fact that, you know, the president of America was considering him, who is supposed to be the most powerful person in the world, was considering him a personal friend? Was it that that in his ego just took over? Because the fact that there were so many things that they didn't bother to consult the cabinet about, I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and also the fact that it was clear and that there it wasn't a last resort, who would go to war unless it was a last resort? Well, it wasn't Tony Blair that was out there fighting. It wasn't him that was putting his life in danger. Um, so, yeah, but I had a few people on Twitter saying to me, what would Iraq have looked like had we not gone out? And I'm saying, but that's not relevant because nobody knows. Absolutely nobody has a clue what it would have looked like if we hadn't, you know, gone out. So I think the argument they were trying to develop there was you know, it would have been so much worse if we hadn't. And the point is, we didn't, listening to the Labour MPs, you know, making excuses was quite cringeworthy. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's almost like saying that, you know, we got, we got Al Capone for tax evasion, that somehow the ends justified the means, and now actually it doesn't matter if the means are about hockey or about ropey, because ultimately it was the right thing. And yeah. You can't you can't even hide by that defence. It's not like we're looking at something now which is a much better, more stable situation, and then you've got a real moral dilemma about the path they took to get there. The path they took to get there was uh, full of holes, and the result we've ended up with is a massive crater. And and they were you know they were saying um, some of the Labour MPs were saying things like um, but but you'll never tell me it was a bad thing to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Nobody said that. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Nobody is saying it was a bad thing, but. You know, um, if we felt that it was our job to do that because he was posing a threat that we felt we had to, you know, we had to kill off, then fine, but you don't have to go to war in order to root out a dictator. You do not have to go to war to do that. And Tony Blair didn't come to Westminster and say, he didn't come to the House of Commons and say, we want to we go to war because of Saddam Hussein. He said... We want to go to war because Saddam Hussein has got weapons of mass destruction and we know he has. Seen Robin Cook's speech that he gave him, the resignation speech mm -hmm. that he gave in Parliament, which has been going around again, he pointed out that 
at the time that the reason we could countenance uh, an attack, uh, an invasion of Iraq, was because they were so weak, um, which sort of undermines the idea that they're a threat. Now, obviously, at that point, you could start to talk about asymmetrical warfare, so that's where concepts of terrorism play into it, that there's, you know, all it takes is, like, you know, seven guys and some guns to cause mayhem, but that, again, there was no link between that type of warfare, that Al-Qaeda-style um, guerrilla warfare, and Iraq. So, it's just an argument that ties itself in knots, and the sort of the frustrating thing is for so many people at the time that we were we were making these arguments and we held these opinions um, and it's easy for there's always, there's always someone out there who's got an opinion at some point so someone will be wrong even a, you know a broken clock's right twice a day but there was a there was a genuine disbelief about the evidence that we were presented with in the country and then for lawmakers to to somehow suggest that they were duped into it or they had to follow it at the time I think there's a lot of parliamentarians I've got to kind of look at themselves and think, why did they vote for war just because everyone else is doing it? Yeah, but again, they were given false information, so, you know, but stop making excuses. And if you look back at the kind of Hillsborough inquiry, that that pointed fingers at the end of it and, and, and showed that some people were to blame. The Chilcott report, again, from the secondary tertiary reading that I'm doing, not the actual report, it kind of ultimately dances around the fact who's to blame, from, from what I can read about it, that it, yeah. it says that mistakes were made, things were exaggerated, but at no point then falls on to say, by X or by Y so this report is going to be ultimately useless unless some punitive action whether that be you know, jail time is obviously ridiculous I don't, think that's, I don't think that's going to happen but by any stretch of the imagination but unless there's a, some sort of verdict at the end of this mm -hmm. which at least tarnishes some people's names involved in it then yeah. what, what good is the report because it doesn't it doesn't put forward any mm. any recommendations that will change the next time I don't know I mean I think um, the families it meant a lot to the families of um, Iraqis who died. The fam family Iraqi families who now have to live here because of what happened in their country. To the families of the soldiers, it meant a lot to them because, similarly to the, but for different reasons to the families uh, of the victims of the Hillsborough disaster, um, they were you know they were able to say we said this all along and we've been vindicated. Um, you know, and lots of people were pilloried and ridiculed for, you know, their views on this, and they've all been vindicated. So I think it's good in that respect. But there's a two-day debate coming up in Parliament, and I, I do believe Alex Salmond might be quite high-profile in that debate because he, you know, said all along he, you know, I'm pretty sure he was down here at the time, voted against it. Uh, I'm only. Pretty sure he was down here. If he was down here, he did mm. vote against it. It's hard to track Alex Salmon. You know which which parliament he's in and all that. He's, he's, he moves everywhere. <laughs> he's never been in the European Parliament actually. Oh well. And he never will be. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's a, a really sorry tale. But I was just pleased that I, being cynical, thought that it would be a total whitewash, and I don't think it was. It was quite clear about a number of things. So. Yeah, I, th I think the difference between the Hillsborough report and this is that the Hillsborough report ultimately vindicated. Uh, people or the relatives of people who were ultimately blamed for that. So yeah. there was there was an assumption that it was the sort of the crowd's fault that this happened, and the report yeah. ultimately showed that it, it wasn't the crowd's fault. Yeah. And this one, although it does vindicate that the, the the decision to go to war was wrong, it still doesn't it still doesn't provide any. And I'm not saying it's a blame game, but it doesn't actually kind of point at the cause and therefore help to avoid it next time. I still feel like the current system we've got that. Maybe David Cameron is a bit of a dead duck prime minister at the minute because he's working his notice, but um, this could happen again. Mm. 
and the cover of the sun could have again you know the the, the charles kennedy cover it had you know one's a one's a spineless animal and one's a snake mm-hmm. um so very easily could we get in a situation where a repeat of iraq was ha- would happen and we couldn't trust it and also conversely it's it's an abuse of trust because if we are in a genuine situation where you know the country is genuinely an existential threat from another kind of country that people would be very cynical of it so it, although this report is good it kind of underlines what people knew anyway and i'm just interested to see how that will manifest itself and and change in the future to to avoid that happening yeah no i agree with you i agree i agree to that extent um but there's it forms the basis for um people to continue to campaign for tony blair to be brought to task yes brought to task I think brought to task it covers many many things. Um, yeah. That one and and like you said that there's a debate coming up this week. I, I've I read somewhere it was potentially a two day debate about Chilcot. So it's definitely um, a two day debate Wednesday and Thursday. How do you prepare for that? Are you are you planning to ask questions or get involved in the debate? Or are you are you going to attend both days? How how does that work from kind of your perspective? Yeah, um, I'm certainly going to be attending on the Wednesday. If there's a vote on the Thursday, obviously I'll need to be here. Um, my intention is to ask questions because if you we've we've already got people from the the uh, defence team who are down to speak, and you you can only get so many speakers. But also, if you're speaking in the debate, you've got to be in for the whole thing. Whereas, and then you can't go to any of your other previously agreed to appointments. So I'll be certainly spending a few hours in the chamber listening to the opening speeches. I'll be in to hear what Alex Salmond and Brendan O'Hara have to say and I'll try to ask questions. But um, you know, I expect that half the Parliament will be bobbing up and down looking to ask questions. So we'll we'll see. We'll see if I can catch the speaker's eye. Yeah, I think from my point of view, it'll be another day of having Sky News on in the background and having to, or BBC Parliament <laughs> and having to watch the news. And and again, although it's it's for a dark topic, I come back to this point that um, this is a this is a really interesting time for people to be engaged in politics and have opinions. Um, and I just wish that you know everyone takes more interest in in, in what happens in that place because it's it impacts all our lives on a daily basis. Yep, yep, it does. It does. It certainly impacts on mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And so, as I mean, we've covered all the parliamentary business. Now, that's pretty much parliament sorted, dusted that off. We, we've, we've talked about everything that's coming up in government over the next few weeks. Um, so anything else you want to talk about? I think you wanted to mention something particular that's kind of important to you over the past week or so. Yes, I wanted to say that black lives matter, but you would never know it. Um, if you look at what's happening in the States at the moment, um, and I'm really deeply concerned uh, to hear the reports of another Another two men, I don't, I've not looked at the news today, perhaps it's more, another two black men uh, shot by police. Now you don't know the ins and outs, you don't know the, the absolute details until they investigate, but how many times is this going to happen? How many times are we going to hear that somebody was doing nothing? This uh, particular one, the 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 one that on Saturday night I think it was, um, the woman who was with her partner um, filmed it. She didn't. Obviously, she filmed the aftermath, and she did that because she knew she knew that you had to. Um, she knew that she had to record it. She was scared, really, um, and she said that. Uh, so they were in their car. He had a tail light out. We've all been there. The police yep. uh, stopped him. Stopped them, and they asked him to get his. Um, 
Thingamere is a uh, driver's license out. Yeah. And uh, as he went for his driver's license, they thought he was going for a gun and shot him dead. And his four-year-old daughter was in the back seat. Um, and that and she was in the front. And that just absolutely terrifies me. I mean, <laughs> it terrifies me on a personal level. I'm going to the States in a few weeks with my partner, who is black. But it terrifies me on a kind of, you know, global level that what is wrong with humanity when, you know, we don't see each other as people. We see each other as a colour. Know, support the Black Lives Matter campaign. All lives matter. It's not. Oh, sorry, Anne, you're breaking up there. Uh, what was that? Sorry. Well, basically, I was saying to all the people who um, hate the Black Lives Matter hashtag and campaign because they want to protest that all lives matter. Well, they should go and read up on it because nobody is saying that all lives don't matter. What they're saying is that Black lives don't seem to matter as much as white lives and that's what the campaign's about um, and if you go and look at the aftermath of what happened to Philando Castile who is just one of many many black people in the United States who have been shot dead by police officers who uh, are then you know the the families report that there was there was no danger to the police officer like Philando Castile who apparently was just reaching as he was told to do for his driving license if you go and read up on that you'll understand why they have to have this Black Lives Matter campaign and it just really depresses me that that we just you know we're still we're still there we're going backwards you know what I don't, I don't understand what's wrong with us I don't understand what's wrong with the world today and then um, those of us that think it is wrong have to keep speaking out about it and not be scared to do so yeah it seems like um, people that are that complain about uh, black lives matter as a concept are also the sort of people who don't like feminism and yeah. yes if the world was perfect if, if we lived in the world we wanted mm -hmm. to live in we wouldn't need to have black lives matter as a, as a thing we wouldn't need to have feminism as a thing because we would just treat each other as equal human beings but we don't live in that world and in a world where um, a black man with his family in the car can get pulled over, do everything he was told to do, mm -hmm. and get shot to death. Mm. That's a world where we do actually need to consider the different experience that black people have, yeah. rather than just just as a human being that we're all the same. Well, obviously, lots of us aren't treated like like that. Exactly. So exactly, that's a very good analogy, actually, Jed. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Um, so I mean, so that's obviously it's, it's a massive story in, in America at the minute, and it's and it's, it's Rodney King seems to happen every week in America at the minute now that people have phones to record it. So mm -hmm. these these um, crimes that are committed against against ordinary folk happen every day. The only difference is now that people can actually the people that are left behind can basically record it or, yeah. or make a noise about it. So I, I don't think this is indicative of a new wave of, of racism or anything. I think it's just the same old racism that people could ignore for years. Yeah, maybe you're right. And I have to, you know, I would pay tribute to uh, Philando Castile's uh, wife and mother of his child for the calm way in which she conducted herself. Um, and then I saw her, um, she was relieved from uh, questioning she was questioned uh, at five in the morning or something and there was a group of waiting reporters and supporters and she was crying and she said this is the first I've been able to cry you know she just not she's not only just lost her husband and the father of her child she's lost she's 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 caught up in this 
She was there when this horrific incident happened and it happened. He was shot to death by somebody that's supposed to keep them safe. And her four-year-old watched it all. I mean, she's got so much going on in her world to deal with and she's handled herself with such dignity and strength. And I, I, I don't know if I could do it, but you know, you really, really have to. I think her name is Lavish Reynolds and I just want to, you know, pay tribute to her and just, you know, say to her and people like her, from over here, you know, we're with you and, and we know that black lives matter. And um, sort of closer to home, a, a local party figure that, uh, in our branch and, um, uh, passed away recently and uh, there was a funeral and stuff. Do you want to kind of maybe tell the listeners a little bit about um, Richard and uh, what he meant and, and, and the send-off this week? Yeah, oh, it was it was really sad. Tuesday afternoon um, was the funeral of Richard Quinn, who uh, was a member in Springburn, so a constituent of mine. But he'd been an activist for... Uh, well, I don't know, for as long as I can remember, um, and really committed and passionate and never up or down, just kept going and kept going. And, um, you know, he was honorary president of our branch, Proven SNP, uh, for a number of years. And it was always, it was always great to me, I've got to say, Richard was always lovely to me, always very supportive, always very kind to me. And... I thought I knew him very well, but there I was, yet again, this happens all the time, at an SNP funeral and I learned so much more about Richard than I ever knew before, which is strange and it makes me think, do you know what, when we get together as SNP activists, we've got to, got to do more than talk about politics, we need to talk about each other, I want to know these things. And so he had this, you know, really interesting background and um, his funeral, I have to say, was, was just lovely. Moira, his wife, had asked for people to come with yellow flowers with the black in the centre and Mary, one of our uh, branch members, got some buttercups and a, a black felt-tip pen <laughs> <laughs> put a dot in the middle of the buttercup. <laughs> um, but the it was at Maryhill Crematorium and it was delayed by a good 10-15 minutes because they couldn't get everybody in. And I don't think everybody did get in in the end. Certainly, you know, there were crowds of us standing. It was standing room only. And even then, I don't think everybody even got standing inside. Some of them had to stand outside. So it was absolutely lovely to see how many people turned up. And it was a really nice service. But it's just ugh, it's just rubbish that he's gone. It's just really sad. And that's us at the end of another episode of Parliamental. And if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at ParlamentalPod, on Facebook, you can search for Parliamental, and on email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Again, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. And I'll return on a fortnight with another episode. Isn't that right, Anne? Yes, and that'll be the start of the summer recess, so I'll be in a very good mood. Brilliant, look forward to it. So yeah, we'll maybe do some adventurous podcasts over the next coming weeks at you out and about at various events because, as we know, you never have any downtime. <laughs> well, I'm actually going on holiday at some point over the summer, so I will have some downtime. But, yeah, lots and lots on over the summer in Glasgow. And, yeah, let's 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 get the podcast on the road. Brilliant, Parliamental on the road. Looking forward to it. So everyone tune into that in the next couple of weeks. And anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.